Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're going to look into one of, I think, the most important stories in the entire Torah. And I say that because I think that it bears the most directly on our journey through life. And just to kind of widen our, our minds for a moment, just expand our consciousness, remember the word that begins the entire Torah, and the Zohar says that the Torah itself is the blueprint for reality. The word that starts us all off, our introduction to reality, if you will, to this realm, is in the beginning, or out of beginnings, or with beginnings. And I heard Rabbi Tatz once say something so unbelievable, which is that the word beginning in and of itself, implies a middle and an end. In other words, our introduction to our lives is we're part of a process. And the nature of a process is that it unfolds. One of my greatest teachers, Rabbi Shimon Green, he founded Birkas HaTorah in the old city of Yerushalayim. And one of the things that I would love that he would say is he would be about 20 25 minutes into a talk, right? Into a, you know, serious Torah presentation. And he would say, we're not communicating yet. We're not communicating, but, but we're going to communicate. Don't we're, we're going to communicate. And I love that he's been speaking for 20 minutes. And he's telling us, we're not communicating yet. So with that in mind, this idea that we're all on a journey and that the spies are talking about How do you go through life when all of the information has not been revealed to you yet and that the signs that you see point to disaster? (laughs) I'm going to say that again because this is all of our lives, okay? I'm being a little bit dramatic when I use the word disaster. But all of us have had periods in our lives where we don't know. That's most of our lives, right? And as it unfolds, it's not exactly going your way. You don't know if it's going to go your way. And maybe the whole thing is just going to explode into like a, a terrible situation. And so what do you do then? What conclusions do you draw then? How do you get to the next step into the next day? And how do you keep a positive attitude? Right? Do you hear what... Do, do you hear how this is really discussing our lives? Every, every, the, the most essential aspects of our lives. Well, I'll give you one brief answer. And maybe this is the best answer I'm going to give you the whole time. But we're going to delve deeply into this subject, which is keep moving. Okay, you want, we're just going to open, we're just going to open with a definitive answer before we start exploring it. Keep moving. And I'm basing that on a Torah from Reb Labela Eger. That was Rabbi Akiva Eger's grandson, one of the great Hasidic masters of about 100 years ago. And he very wisely pointed out the fact that our introduction to Avraham Avinu, right, to Abraham, was Lech Lecha. And that's the first command in the Torah that's given to a Jew. And he says that that command is given to all Jews for all time, keep moving. Don't stop moving, right? Until the end, until the end. So 
So that's one very practical thing, one tool that we can take right away. But I want to get more into this idea because, you know, one of the things that the Rambam points out is that before Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, everything was on the level of black and white, meaning to say true and false, emes and sheker. And what happened after we ate from the tree of knowledge is everything became this grand gray area, right? Good and bad mixed together and everything was sort of like dependent. You still had true and false. You still had good and bad, but our ability to perceive it became very subjective. That, that you know, ultimate objectivity, which exists because truth exists, became very shrouded and cloudy in our minds. And so as we go through life, it seems like we're traveling through the fog, through this gray area. And you know, it's interesting because what is fog? <laughs> you ready for this just on a meteor, meteor weather level? How about that? How about, let's, let's get simple. What is fog? And sometimes in California we have fog and I didn't know what it was. And then someone explained to me, it's when clouds hang really low which I thought, wow, you know, because I tend to think of clouds just all the way up in the sky. But clouds can sort of like drop really low and then you're in fog. You know, there's a whole nother name for it. So the journey through life is pretty foggy. But now listen to this. It just, it's coming into my head right now as I'm telling it to you. When we journeyed through the desert, we were shrouded by the clouds of glory. Isn't that interesting? That in other words, in other words, what can be fog for some people are the clouds of glory. But you have to know they're the clouds of glory. Otherwise, it's just fog. In other words, are you seeing the divine hand in your travels directing you or not? Because if you don't see the divine hand, the, the clouds of glory just manifest themselves to you as fog. Do, do you hear what I'm saying? So what is the secret ingredient? The secret ingredient is recognizing the divine hand leading you. Otherwise, it's just fog. And I'm going to just tell you one of the great new things that I learned. This was, I'm quoting from Rabbi Norman Lamb, but he is explaining the Kutzka Rebbe about the spies. Now remember, whenever you talk about Kutsk, you're talking about truth, emes, right? You ready for this? We want to say that the spies slandered the land of Israel. And on a very deep level, they did, by the way. But, but listen to the Kutsker's analysis of it. Now remember, this is coming from a man who is absolutely consumed by the nature of truth. Now he says the following, that the spies didn't lie, but they also didn't tell the truth. All right, now let me explain it a little bit further. He says that everything that they said was accurate. So since it was accurate, 
it wasn't a lie. But for something to achieve the exalted level of emis, of truth, it has to be more than just factually correct. It also has to factor in what is the will of God in the moment. And when the spies gave their report about the land, while they didn't lie about the nature of the land, they left out what God's will was for the people, which was to enter the land. And so even though they didn't lie, they didn't tell the truth because they didn't include the will of God in their perception of the circumstances ahead of them. Now, that is a, that's a game-changing thought for our lives. Because, remember, we're the ones on the journey. We're the ones who are in the fog. So the first thing that we have to do is turn the fog into a cloud. The first thing that we have to do is we have to recognize that God is leading us. But how do you turn the fog into a cloud? And the Kutzker Rebbe is giving us a tremendous secret in terms of how to do it. And the answer is by asking yourself, what is the will of God for me in the moment? Because what that does is it creates clarity. What is expected of me in these confusing circumstances? And what's so wonderful about the Torah is the Torah is giving us, you know, the, the, the greatest distinctions, this and not that, that and not this. In every situation, there is Torah counsel of how to move forward in a, in a lucid way. And, and if you can't divine it yourself from your own learning, there are brilliant, wonderful, inspired, holy teachers all around who you can ask. And they'll tell you. I remember in the days before GPS, now, you know, you don't have to depend on the, the traffic report if you're, if you're about to take a, a journey. But in those days before GPS, what would happen is above all of the highway lanes, you'd have a helicopter. And that helicopter would be looking down at a distance and it would see further than you could see from your own car. And it would tell you, this is the proper way. And so Rabbi Green said that these are our chachamim, these are our sages, that they're like, the, they're like up in a helicopter looking down and they've got a broader picture. And sometimes you say, you know, this is true for our, even our GPS experiences today. You know, it tells you the shortest route is that way and you're in bumper to bumper traffic. Or as they like to say in the traffic reports here in Los Angeles, bummer to bummer, you know, traffic, right? So, so you say, wait a second, how could this be faster? Well, you're right, it looks equally bad this way. Ah, but if you have a little bit of distance on the situation, you see that it's gonna free up and the traffic is gonna start flowing much faster this way than the other way. And so all of this is the benefit of being able to divine God's will. And that's how we turn fog into clouds, by asking ourselves, what is God's will in this moment? And that creates clarity. So I just want to talk about how great the challenge is, because you can be really sincere and really devoted that won't stop you from being extremely perplexed. 
and maybe even frustrated and maybe even angry because you don't know, God, what is your will? Why is it going this way and not that way? And I got some, some chizuk, some strength, when I was looking, excuse me, when I was looking over the Parsha, and I saw two things. Remember, 12 spies get sent, and these spies are the leaders of the Jewish people, and they're called tzaddikim. And then, through a variety of different explanations, they fall from their spiritual level immediately. And the explanations are absolutely fascinating. How and why did that happen? One explanation is, you know, the, the name of the Parsha is Shlach Lecha. Which shlach has the same root as the word a, a shaliach, a messenger. So send messengers. And the interesting thing about a messenger, according to Torah law, is that you can send a messenger and that messenger will be your representative 100% in this new situation that the person is in. So in other words, you can't make it, but you send a messenger and that messenger represents you absolutely. So much so that one of sort of like the curiosities that, that I, I always think is so fascinating is, according to Jewish law, you do not have to attend your own wedding. Do you know that? You can send a shaliach to get married on your behalf. And then with that in mind, one of the things that I think is so great is the Talmud then says, do you know what the definition of a bad shaliach, a bad messenger or representative is? Someone who you send to marry someone on your behalf and the messenger marries her for himself instead. That's a bad messenger, all right? So anyway... What is, what is very interesting is that all of us on the deepest levels are messengers for God in this world. We are messengers. We have the status and we're being sent by God into this world with a mission from God. So that's, that's very, very deep. If you want to just sort of like, just kind of consider who you are or what you are, the idea that you're an extension of God's will. It's not just that you know, God puts batteries in you and then you operate, you know, and your batteries are a piece of God. That's your soul. And now you're on your own. Good luck. No, no, no. You actually are a messenger of God in this world. And that's what your soul is. It's more than just batteries so that you can do your own will. It's so that you can be an extension of God's will. Of course, we have free choice and then we can decide what, how we want to use that that, that, that mission to be a, a messenger. But, but that's what it is on the deepest level. Now, I want to get back to this idea of addressing how great a challenge it is. And it's a great challenge for absolutely everyone. And let me give you an example. Twelve spies are sent. Oh, I'm sorry, just to complete that last thought. One of the explanations of why they, these tzaddikim, these twelve leaders of the Jewish people, fell immediately, as soon as they went on their mission, is because the people themselves didn't want to go into the land. And as soon as they became official representatives of the people, the will of the people filled their minds. And so they dropped from their spiritual level as soon as that plug was put into the socket. As soon as the people 
put the plug into the socket and made these 12 leaders their representatives, all of a sudden their own will became overcame by the people and they dropped in their spiritual level. Very fascinating explanation, okay? I'll give you another explanation, which is that there was an imperfection within the spies themselves and that they felt that they wouldn't achieve the same, they wouldn't have the same position of authority and honor in, in the land when, when the people entered the land of Israel as they had in the desert. So it, it shows you how one of the corruptive force in our lives is our own sense of honor and trying to guard and maintain our own honor and how that can lead us to make very catastrophic decisions in our lives. Very interesting. I'll give you another answer. And this is maybe the deepest answer, in my opinion. And I heard this from Reb Shlomo, and he said it in the name of the Zohar. He said that the spies got to the land, and they looked at the land, and they saw the greatness and the beauty of the land of Israel. But then, and this was Reb Shlomo's phrase, I, I always remember it, they looked into the heavenly bank account of the Jews and they saw that we didn't have enough merit to deserve entering the land of Israel. But now listen to this. This, this PS now, and again I heard this from Reb Shlomo, is, is life-changing. Listen to this. But what they didn't realize, they saw we didn't have enough merit, but what they didn't realize was that God could give it to us as a gift. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? So when you look at your own life, you know, you say, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. You know what? You might not be worthy. <laughs> that might be absolutely the reality. You, you aren't worthy. But God can give it to you as a gift. And the Talmud speaks about the treasury of unearned gifts up in Shemayim, up in heaven. There's an entire treasure house of undeserved gifts that God gives people blessings from. And it said no less than Moshe Rabbeinu himself would daven to receive from the treasury of unearned gifts because he himself felt that, that you know, he's just doing God's will. So what's so great about him, right? Remember, Moshe is the, the most humble person that ever lived. And Humility means, true Torah humility means you recognize your greatness, but you realize at the same time it entitles you to nothing. Isn't that amazing? Let me say that again. True Torah humility, and right now I'm quoting from the Sefer of Rabbi Chaim Kedievsky, Sefer Tzadok Levrocha, and he writes this in his Sefer, that true humility means that you recognize your true level, but you realize it entitles you to nothing. And, and, and instead of seeing this as like, okay, so then what do I deserve? That's just it. If you don't deserve, then you get from the treasury of unearned gifts. See, the problem is, is that it's hard to receive from the treasury of unearned gifts because everyone's saying, I deserve this and I deserve that. <laughs> So if you're arguing about everything that you deserve, you can't get from the treasury of undeserved gifts. Do you understand? 
But if you say, I've achieved everything that I've achieved, and you recognize those as legitimate achievements, but you realize that you're still completely 10,000% at the mercy of God, that actually opens up gates for you to receive from this tremendous spiritual storehouse. Okay. So now, I want to get back to this idea about just how difficult it is. And now, <clears throat> everybody knows that two of the 12 spies somehow, somehow, made it through this incredible, this incredible trial without getting spiritually destroyed. And that was Yehoshua and Kalev. And Kalev, before he goes on this trip with the other spies, the, the rabbis explained that intuitively he understood that it was going to be very hard for him to maintain his purity of thought and his purity of intention when you had 10 people who were going to try to override him and to influence him and to corrupt him, essentially. And so the Torah spells out in the Torah itself, there's a line that says that Kalev went to Hebron, where the giants were. Remember, remember one of the things that absolutely devastates the Jewish people when the spies come back is when they say it's a, it's a land of giants. So Kalev goes to where the giants are, the, one of the, the headquarters of where the giants are, which was in Hebron, in order to pray at the graves of the patriarchs and matriarchs. So to tell you how difficult it is to see the clouds leading you and not the fog, Kalev himself says, the only way I'm going to be able to make this is if I get to Hebron and I'm davening for heavenly protection and guidance at the grave sites of our holy fathers and mothers, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and, and, and Sarah, Rivka, and Leah. That's the only way I'm going to be able to make it through. Now, if Kalev is thinking this, what about us? What about us? And then the other one who makes it through is Yehoshua. Now, remember, his name before he goes on this trip is Hoshea. And no less than Moshe Rabbeinu himself changes his name to ensure his success and that he shouldn't be negatively influenced by the people around him. And adds a Yud. Of course, the Yud is the highest letter in the entire Aleph base. We always talk about how God made the world out of the, the letters of the Aleph base and that on a quantum physics level, there are different emblems of energy wavelengths. And Yud is the highest. Yud is the highest, highest, highest. So Moshe affixes the letter Yud to his name, to Hoshea's name, which is why we all call him Yehoshua. That becomes his name. So in other words, if you were to come up to me and say, well, Moshe changes Hoshea's name to Yehoshua, when do you think he did that? I would have stroked my chin, <laughs> and I would have said, right before he took over the Jewish people. That's when he did it. You know, that's when he needed the greatest strength. The power is being transferred. That's the moment. No. It was before he took this trip and headed into the deepest, darkest, grayest area. That's, that's when he did it. 
So again, I'm telling you these two stories about Kalev and Yehoshua to say that if our two greatest people, the only two people who made it out of this, this horror show, basically, and I'm going to tell you just how horrible this, this whole unfolding of events happens till this day for the Jewish people. You have to appreciate how difficult it is for us to navigate our way through life and when the signs become very, very confusing. And remember, how confusing were the signs that they saw? So this is the greatest example. Because this was a very sensitive military mission, right? You've got spies coming into the land. Now, the people know that the, that the Jewish people are entering into the land of Israel. They've already defeated Sihon and Og, two great like empires, like fortress, fortress cities, fortress areas that were basically unconquerable. And the Jewish people just bang, just made quick work with both of them because the hand of God was leading them and nothing was standing in their way. So you can imagine the people of Israel are like, really, they're waiting for the Jewish people and they're terrified. And, and we know from the testimony of Rachav in the Haftorah that she said, our hearts were melting knowing that you guys were entering. Meanwhile, the Jewish people are terrified of them. They're terrified of us and we're terrified of them. This is life, right? So the point is, is that they were very much on the lookout for any incursion from us. And so the spies had to be very, very careful. Anyway, the point is that in order to keep the people from noticing the spies, God arranged that there should be a lot of funerals. So now listen to this. You have to really like take this in because this is really pointing to how confusing life is. Why a lot of funerals? So that all the people of the land should be busy and preoccupied burying their dead and won't notice the spies searching out the land over this period of 40 days. Okay, a little bit unusual, but you can see the logic to it. What do the spies see? Everywhere we look, people are burying their dead. This is a land that consumes its own people. That's the conclusion that they draw. Now, that's not coming from a lack of intelligence. <laughs> that is showing you how difficult it is to interpret the signs around us. Everywhere they look is a funeral. God is blessing the Jewish people with all these funerals so that the spy shouldn't be discovered. And meanwhile, the spies are just seeing this as this horrible sign of this land that we're heading into. Okay, I'm going to give you another example of how confusing everything was. The spies bring back a cluster of giant grapes. And on two poles, these grapes were so large, they had to be carried on the shoulders of the people on two poles. And you may be familiar with that because the, the Israeli government ad adopted that as the sign of national tourism. Now, there's a debate among the commentators, what did the spies have in mind bringing back these giant grapes? By the way, it also said that they brought back 
giant pomegranate and a giant figs. Pomegranates and figs, really big, big of both, okay? But what do they have in mind showing giant grapes to the people? And one explanation is that they wanted to show how great the land was. Meaning to say, look at this miraculous land that, the, that God is giving the Jewish people. It doesn't just grow normal grapes. It grows these giant clusters of grapes. Okay, that's one interpretation. The other interpretation is that the spies were bringing it back to say, look at this land. It's inhabited by giants. They eat giant food. And just like they're eating these giant grapes, they're going to eat you. So again, how do we understand the signs around us? How do we understand the signs around us when everything is so confusing? Now, I have a favorite story, and I heard this from Rabbi Biederman, and I just want to share it with you because it's speaking to all of these points right now. So he says it's 100% a true story, and it happened in Israel, and there were a group of people, and they were waiting to take the last bus for the night, okay? And it's not showing up. And it's something like a half an hour late, and the people are going into a minor panic because how are they going to get home? They're completely stranded. What are they supposed to do? Sleep by the side of the road, right? And finally, a bus starts, you know, barreling past them with a different number on it. And they go, this is our last chance. They, they, they flag down the bus. The bus stops. And, and they say, you, you've got to take us. And he says, this is not my route. You know, I, I, I could get fired if I, if, if, if I bring you on the bus. And, and they say, please, what, we're stranded. He goes, okay, get on the bus. So they get on the bus and they're so grateful. They keep on thanking him and he starts driving them home and all of the rest. And then finally he says, listen, I have to tell you the truth. I'm your bus driver. <laughs> and what happened was I fell asleep. And I knew if I showed up a half an hour late, you were going to scream at me. And so I changed the number on the bus so that when you saw me, you would be grateful instead of angry. <laughs> now, Rabbi Biederman says from this, look at this tremendous insight into people that we're seeing here. The same bus, the same bus driver arriving at the exact same time. And in one situation, the people are overwhelmingly grateful. And in the other situation, they're they would have been like ready to strangle him. So how much of it has to do with the way we are perceiving things? And again, it's turning the fog of our lives into the clouds of glory to know that we are being led. I, I once wrote a song and I, I don't have any music to it yet, but I'll sing it to you. <laughs> We, we need some good music to these lyrics, but, but here it is. I don't know where I'm going, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know where I'm going, but the driver is good. <laughs> right? That, that's what it is. And that's what it's starting to boil down to now. Because... 
Do we understand the one who's leading us? Do we understand that even though we don't know that we're being led, that we are being led? In other words, many people think they don't, this is coming from emotionality, not from rationality, what I'm about to tell you. But from the standpoint of our emotions, if we don't feel, know where we're being led to, we feel like we are not being led. But you can be being led while at the same time not knowing where you're being led to. <laughs> and that is a giant majority of our lives. So then how do you find comfort amidst the uncertainty? And the answer is by knowing that the driver is good. That is the secret to life, period, period. So let me tell you a couple of things on that. I thought of this example. Imagine you're standing before a bride and she's in her white wedding dress and she's, her hair and her makeup is done, right? And you say to the person, the bride is right there, and in front of the bride, you say to someone, how does the bride look? And the person looks, <laughs> and he's looking the bride up and down and says, to tell you the truth, she could be taller. <laughs> Who talks like this? Who talks like this? There is only one answer, that the bride is beautiful. That, that is the only answer. So Moshe is talking about the land of Israel. The land is our bride, do you understand? We are not complete unless we're in the land. The land is our bride. And he's asking, how does the land look? And they go, well, to tell you the truth, they're giants and they're fortresses and... We saw a lot of funerals, a lot of funerals, right? And meanwhile, the, the people are panicking. So, so this is the thing, and I want to go deeper right now, because what makes the gray area and the fog so dense before our eyes that we begin to question everything. And it's because we experience so many challenges. And so when we get, when this doesn't work out right away and when that doesn't work out right away, we, we feel like we're completely lost and then we feel like we're abandoned. And when we, you know, add to the idea that we, we, we don't even know if we're going to get there to begin with, and now we feel lost and abandoned, then that's, you know, next stop, oblivion, basically. Spiritual oblivion, life oblivion, right? We look for joy and comfort in all the wrong places at that point, because, because if, we're, if we feel so, so needy and, and you know, one of the things for people who overeat, and I'm, I'm sure I fall into this category as well, is psychologically, 
one of the things about eating food is that you can get instant validation, instant comfort, instant sort of like, okay, look, I don't know how this next phone call is going to go, but I know if I eat this Lay's kettle chip, <laughs> I am going to experience pleasure. That, that, that much I know. <laughs> that much I know. And so on a very deep level, there is a validation, you know, that the cause and effects of the world have not gone completely haywire. If I eat this good tasting thing, it's going to give me pleasure. And so there is sort of like this reassurance that takes place, right? And then from that reassurance, you experience love because when you are reassured in a very deep and meaningful way, then you feel love. And so a lot of people overeat because they are ingesting love, reassurance. There's an order to the world. The world does make sense. This tastes good. I feel good. Okay. Not everything is haywire. Okay. So again, our question is, what makes the fog so dense and gray and, and really gets to the point where we start to make wrong decisions? And I got this insight and I want to share it with you, which is, I think on a very deep level, many of us confuse challenges with punishments. I'm going to say that again and I'm going to explain it. We confuse challenges that we experience in life as punishments from God. And now let me tell you why that's like really central, okay? Because all of life is challenges. And how many times in your life did it seem like it wasn't going your way and then it did go your way? So we see that the existence of challenges in and of itself is not a contradiction that things won't work out. So, so challenges are not punishments. Challenges means that God wants you to continue to work because this entire world is a work session. And I want to prove that to you, by the way. This is a thought, one of the thoughts that I would love to get out into the world before I move on to the next world. I would like people to really understand this in their minds very, very deeply. We tend to think of the, the Garden of Eden as a cosmic spa. It was a cosmic spa and then we blew it. Okay? And how did we blow it? We, we ate from the tree of knowledge and then all of these curses essentially came down. And one of the curses was, you know what? From now on, you're going to have to work for a living. Bread is not going to grow on trees. Clothing is not going to grow on trees. Like you're, you're just, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. Isn't it great that I'm like at an airport right now? <laughs> I'm not, but it seems that way, doesn't it? It's funny. I looked up into the sky and it was like this little biplane that was like motoring along at like nine miles an hour and still somehow managing to not, not nosedive. And it had a banner, FYC, for your consideration, 
the Garcias. So if you want to know what all that noise is behind us, it's people who really want the show The Garcias, which, by the way, I've never even heard of to get an Emmy nomination. So there you go, little context. Anyway, so before we ate from the tree of knowledge, before God said, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow, before any of that happened, God gives a command to Adam to work and guard the garden. Do you understand that? Before we did anything wrong, when the, when the world was still on track that a few, remember, we're created the sixth day, like hours before Shabbos, had we not eaten from the tree of knowledge, we would have gone right into that Shabbos, and that Shabbos would have been the great Shabbos, Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the Messianic era. That's, that's what that first Shabbos would have been if we hadn't eaten from the tree. But before we ate from the tree, this world was still a work session because we had to complete creation. And God charges us with working and guarding the garden. That's really important because it wasn't a cosmic spa. Even before everything went wrong, we still had something to do and we still had to labor. Now that, if you think about that, that's a game changer because it means this world is a realm of work, that it doesn't go away. And again, the challenges are not punishments. The challenges are in place because that's the nature of this world until Mashiach comes. So let me give you an amazing proof of that, an amazing example of that. And I remember when I first learned this, I was very, very reassured by this thought. I, I heard it from Rabbi Orlovsky, and he said the following. You know, Avraham Avinu, Avraham and, and Sarah, let's get back to Lech Lecha for a moment, are commanded, go to Israel. Okay? Now, was, did Avraham do any sins? Avraham didn't do any sins. Right? And what happens? They hear the word of God, go to Israel. They go to Israel. They uproot their entire encampment. They had a big community there. They get up. They travel. They don't even know where they're going, right? Like us. It's an amazing thing. God says to them, go to the place that I will show you. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say where they're going. Can you imagine this giant encampment uproots itself to make this great journey and God doesn't even tell them where they're going? That shows you how great Avraham's faith was. And it shows you also we're all descended from Avraham. We're all his children. So it shows you how, how deep the idea of traveling through life and not knowing exactly where you're going is. This is one of the great tests of life and twas ever so. It's been like this from the beginning. Okay, so now what happens? So you say, okay, great. Avram listens to God, doesn't know where he's going, goes anyway, gets to Israel. Everything should be hunky-dory now, right? To use a phrase that I don't think anyone's used in the last 35 years, right? So everything should be absolutely great now. What happens? Well, God says, I know, how about a famine? Let's do a famine now. And then I know, how about I have your wife 
kidnapped and married to, like, Paro, to, like, one of the local warlords here. What? So you go, oh, I know. Abraham did something wrong. Except Abraham didn't do anything wrong. So then you say, well, then, is life fair? Yeah, life's fair. Well, then, what's the answer? How is life fair? Because it's a work session. Because this world is a work session, and because challenges are not punishments. And that we have to expect challenges, because that is the nature of the world. Okay. Now I want to go even deeper. There are two major mistakes, let's say, that the Jewish people do. There's a whole bunch, but two major ones that throw off the course of the destiny of the Jewish people that we're reading basically one after the other, okay? Well, not exactly one after the other, but anyway. One is very well known, and that's the sin of the golden calf. And then you have the sin of the spies. Now, I want to contrast them for a moment, because I don't think sufficient understanding is there concerning the sin of the spies and how that, in a way, has affected us even more dramatically than the sin of the golden calf. Okay, everybody knows about the sin of the golden calf. The way the Gomorrah explains it is that God wanted to test us, and so Moshe was supposed to be down from the mountain, and he didn't come down at the time that the people thought that he was going to come down, and then God gave us this extra test and had the Satan show the Jewish people an image, a vision of Moshe lying in a coffin so that the Jewish people should think that Moshe Rabbeinu is dead. And I believe that the reason why God did that was so that we should understand that, okay, we don't have Moshe, we've lost our greatest leader, this is a tragic day for us, but we have you, God, and that's all we need. We have you, God. That's what I think God had in mind. But anyway, what happens? The Jewish people panic when they see that Moshe Rabbeinu, they think, is dead, and they say, we have to appoint another leader. And so they make this golden calf, and they say, this is the God who took us out of Egypt. Now, all of the commentators say, the people were not idiots. <laughs> the people did not think that this golden calf took us out of Egypt and that this, that this golden calf was God. So that in the deepest way, it really wasn't a sin of idol worship. It was a giant, tragic, world-altering mistake, yes. But it wasn't really idol worship. We didn't really think that was God. But we were trying to appoint another go-between between us and God. But the thing is, and it's one of the hallmarks of Judaism, we don't need go-betweens. That's other religions. All of us have a direct connection with God. You have God, and God has you, and you have a piece of God in you, and the bond is absolutely unbreakable, and you don't need anything else. And any other religion who comes to you who says, you need us to be saved, nuts to you. You know? <laughs> like, just put love in the world. Leave us alone. You understand? 
You have a direct connection. That's one of the premises of Judaism. That's what it means. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. God is one. There is no go-between. Okay, very good. So we made a mistake, but now let's contrast that with the sin of the spies. Because it's much more profound. We heard that God was leading us to a place where we were going to be destroyed. Where we were going to be killed. Now, this is very different from the sin of the golden calf. This was a spiritual x-ray of our relationship with God. You see, and it, it, you know, it didn't come out well. This x-ray came out really badly because it showed a profound mistrust for the goodness of God. A profound mistrust for the goodness of God and how he was leading us. And what did I tell you? The number one way to turn the fog into clouds of glory is by understanding that God is good and that God is leading you to a good place, even if you don't understand it. But what happens if you think, well, is God good? I'm not sure God is good. And maybe he's leading me to my destruction. And if that journey is all of our lives and that journey is all of history, then you see that that undoes absolutely everything. It absolutely undoes the premise of our relationship with God. It destroys it. And that's why God's reaction is what it is. He says, I can't do business with this generation anymore. If that's what you think of me, I can't do business with you. And so a decree of 40 years of wandering is put down on the Jewish people so that an entire, until an entire generation dies out. It's not just that 40 years was decreed and over those 40 years, a generation died out. No, it was in order for that generation to die out. After the sin of the golden calf, we were still on track. Moshe was still our leader and we were still heading into the land of Israel with Moshe as our leader, which means that we were still on track for this end of days, you know, completion of our mission in this world scenario. After the sin of the spies, Moshe no longer leads us into the, the land of Israel. Do you, do you understand how profound the change is? Com completely profound, a complete game changer. All of history gets thrown off. Okay, so I want to wrap it up and I want to leave you with this one story that happened to me this week. I'm tenting my house for termites. All right, termites, by the way, are great at eating wood. Like, what an amazing creation of God. God says, you know something? I'm going to make a bug that eats wood. You can't eat wood, but this little bug is going to eat wood. It's going to love wood. It's going to have no problem digesting it. <laughs> like, we eat from the fruit of a tree. But can you imagine if you could eat from the tree? It's like, okay. <laughs> anyway, 
It is quite the ordeal. I thought it was like a Pesach cleaning, but it's more than a Pesach cleaning because when you just clean for Pesach, you just get the bread out of the house. But here you have to get all of the food, all of the medicine, anything of value out of the house because people can come in and ransack the house. And the legal waivers that you have to sign are terrifying. They're like, everything of value will be stolen. And if you can imagine, we actually had a friend, a good friend from the Happy Minion, whose house was being tented. He came back a little bit early and found a robber in his house when he entered his house. So you've got to get everything out of your house and you've got to find a place to stay. And then the guy says to me, you have a tile roof and they've got these pretty you know, strong looking guys who have to walk on the roof of your house. He said, now they're going to be breaking tiles and I'm going to give you a report after they break the tiles initially, how many tiles they're breaking. And then you have to give us the go ahead because if they break a lot of tiles, you have to agree that we're going to put even more weight on top of the house and you're going to have even more tiles broken and that we're not responsible at all. And I'm thinking to myself, why not just walk on my house before the process <laughs> and then tell me if I'm also going to need a brand new roof after this, right? I will pay you to walk on my house before the process. So at that point, you're basically painted into a corner. So what was our report about our tile damage? Not too good, not too bad. <laughs> that's, what, that's what he reported back. So I'm like, you know. The whole house is packed up at this point. So I'm like, just go for it, okay? Anyway, here's the point. The house now has the full tent on it, all of the stickers with, you know, <laughs> like the skeleton with the big X marks, you know, danger because they're pumping the house full of poison. Anyone who runs in during that is gonna be found dead lying on your carpet, right? So we're pulling out of the driveway, my wife and I, who did 98% of all of the work, right? And we're off to my sister's house and I say to her, you did it. You did it. Like, congratulations. And she says back to me immediately, oh, we didn't do it until we moved back in. And I thought to myself, that's a lot of life right there what I said and what she said. And so I just want to talk about that a little bit because the question is, we see that life is a journey. We see that life is a journey. And we see that one of the keys of turning that thick fog into a divine cloud is knowing that God is good and that we're being led even if we don't know how we're being led. And we know that the secret is knowing the goodness of God, but I want to give you another tool for getting through this process, okay? And that's contained in that exchange that I had between my wife and I, where I said to her, we did it, or you did it, and she said, not till we get back in. And this is about celebrating the accomplishments along the way. And one of my closest friends told me in the name of his psychologist, healthy people celebrate. 
healthy people celebrate. And I was sharing this thought with someone and he said, what does that mean, healthy people celebrate? And I said to him, you know, go out for some Chinese food. If you like Chinese food, like, like whatever is meaningful to you, appreciate the fact that nothing has to go right. And if anything goes right, even if you haven't reached your ultimate goal yet, that's cause to celebrate. Take a moment to appreciate something good just happened. You know, I had, I had this experience. I was trying to get a television show on the air a number of years ago. And I'll just make it brief. I was working with some top people. I was working with, this was for NBC, which was, you know, the number one broadcasting network at the time. Now we've got, you know, Netflix and Hulu and all the rest and the traditional networks aren't the monopoly that they once were, but this was for NBC. And there's so many stages to try to get a show on the air. Just, you know, just trust me, a lot of stages. And one of the very last stages is that the executives, the senior leaders of the network themselves are now watching the final contenders. And this person who used to be a bit of a household name, Bob Wright, he was the chairman of the board of General Electric and was very well known at the time. He, he saw my pilot and it was his favorite pilot of all of the pilots that he saw. And it was, that was reported to me back from this Hall of Fame producer, one of the legends of television. This woman, Marcy Carsey, is part of a company called Carsey Werner that produced one giant hit after another. And she called me and she said, Bob Wright said your pilot was his favorite pilot. And I said, does that mean it's going to be ordered? That it's gonna get on the air? And she said, no, you didn't hear me. Bob Wright said, that your pilot was his favorite pilot. And I was like, so it is gonna get on the air? <laughs> and she said, you don't understand. And she was 100% right. I, I didn't understand because I was very focused on the ultimate goal. She said, something nice just happened. Appreciate it. That was her point. You know, this eminent personage really appreciated what you did. <laughs> Appreciate it. So, Hashem should bless us through all of our journeys. And on the deepest level, remember Avraham Avinu, no less than Avraham Avinu, didn't know where he was being led. So if that's the case, how are we supposed to know where we're being led? And Kalev and Yehoshua, the only two to make it through, received special blessings and davened extra hard. And that's Kalev and Yehoshua. If they had to protect themselves and gird themselves for the challenges of the journeys of this world, how much more so do we have to do the same? And remember, the secrets are to celebrate the victories along the way because that's the reassurance that you know that you're being guided and to take strength in that and comfort in that 
and to know that if you want to turn the, the fog, the dense fog around you, into the clouds of glory so that you understand the guiding hand, you have to know the goodness of God. And that it's not, it's not an in, irreconcilable contradiction that if you don't know where you're being led, that means you're not being led. It's not true. We're being led all of the time. And we're being led by the one who has absolutely guaranteed our ultimate success and by the one who loves us the most. Okay. Okay, so, so just to clarify, what I'm trying to get across is just how confusing life is. <laughs> and and how and how we can negotiate and and navigate the confusion successfully so that, so that that's my that's my me. that's my that's my intention <laughs> um, sufficiently confused me thank you okay well <laughs> then i've <laughs> yeah well hopefully i'm explaining it right now i'm i'm saying life is confusing so right, we're agreeing, right. we're agreeing. Life is confusing. And, and what I'm trying to address is, given the confusing nature of life, how do you get through it? So that's okay. all the words are trying to address that question. It's funny because these questions are still confusing to this day. Like, exactly, because we're still in the middle, right we're still on this journey and we're still in the middle of this journey. So exactly, why why would it be otherwise? Or did Abraham pick the right son? Should he have picked Ishmael? Did he pick Ishmael? Like all these questions are. No, that's around. not a question, by the way. God is very specific that it's Yitzchak. The, he, there, it wasn't like pick one, pick one. That that was I, I never part of the. Like, that's not part of our history. I meant I there's billions of of Islamists who say he did pick. Ishmael, but they believe he picked Ishmael. Well, I'm, I'm that's, that's you know, that's, that, that's their business. A good friend of mine once said, my name is Paul, and that's between you all. <laughs> Meaning to say, <laughs> that's, that's your business, that's not my business. You know? <laughs> we, we, Islam, and God bless those who are sincere among the followers who, who really are trying to promote peace and brotherhood in the world. And they very much do exist. I mean, there's like a billion of people who are on this path. So that's a large chunk of the world. See, remember, if you have a radical element, let's say that radical element is 10%. So 10% of a billion is 100 million. So that's nuts. The, 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 the size of, of the pie, so to speak, yeah. is so enormous. But, but that means that there's 900 million who aren't necessarily thinking that way. And, and by the way, you should know, I just read the, the official declaration of the, the announcement that the, that the head of Saudi Arabia put out with the head of Jordan, and this was like maybe last week or just a few days ago. This is very recent. And they explicitly stated that their objective, and they listed a number of things, was to increase the moderate views of Islam in the world. And remember, Saudi Arabia was one of the chief funders of radical Islamic thought. So you have the head of Saudi Arabia saying, that we are dedicated to promoting a 
moderate Islam, and, and this was part of the statement, I, just, I, I may have just read it this morning, was also to dry up the funding for the radical elements. You, you can look it up on the internet and read it yourself. So, so that's, anyway, that, 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 that's meaningful. That's, that's meaningful that that's going on in the world. David, Bahatlacha with your house. I hope the oh. rest goes smoothly and easily for you. Thank you. Amen, amen. Sorry. Sure. Yes, please <laughs> go ahead. Another theme seems to be like minority, like, like, the, uh, and you just said like 10%, you know, it's still 100 million. Like the spies was the minority were getting it right. The Jews who left Egypt was the one fifth, the Homoshim or whatever the oh, is it. So that seems to be another like key to to not go with the majority. Well, you you have the idea that the truth is not subject to a vote. You know, in fact, the the Medrash says that at the time of the Tower of Babel, you had Avraham on one side of the world and the entirety of the world on the other side of the world. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And yet, we know that the truth of existence is the oneness of God. We know that that's the truth of existence. So, so given that, you see that when it comes to truth, it's not a, a numbers game, really. I think one of the confusing things about life is that we have certain premises, like, for instance, the oneness of God. But then... What happens is, is we get so much feedback and so many challenges that the amount of sensory feedback we get in terms of like the numbers is we have a premise, so we hear that once, and then we get just mountains and mountains of contradictory evidence to that. And so, so I was thinking, it's almost like, imagine you have a, a, a golden vessel, like a wide golden vessel, this amazing thing. And that's like these amazing premises that we have, the goodness of God, and it's just, it's gold. Now imagine someone just like mistakenly throws, like washes their hands and throws the towel into that bowl. And now everyone who sees that bowl sees the towel in the middle and they think that it's a garbage receptacle and they just keep on throwing things in there. Meanwhile, the real essence of this thing, which is that it's this golden, beautiful bowl, has become completely transformed. Do you understand? Because we've lost sight of what the premise is and we're just kind of looking at what fills our life. So, in order to maintain clarity, we have to learn Torah every single day. In other words, we have to be reacquainted with what these premises are, what this golden bowl is, so that we don't turn it into something that's secondary and that we don't lose sight of what these guiding principles are. And I'm telling you, the only way to do that is to learn Torah every single day, at least a little bit. At least two minutes, honestly. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. There are, I, I've mentioned it many times, wonderful collections of books, Hasidic wisdom, 
by Rabbi Elkins is, is one of the best. Another great one is Bringing Heaven Down to Earth, 365 Meditations of the Lubavitcher Rebbe by Rabbi Tzvi Freeman. That's another fantastic one. And these are books, many of the collections, Outpourings of the Soul by Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. There, there are many, many books that have small teachings in them, but I always tell you that in, in high school, I learned that if you take a teaspoon of a dwarf star, it weighs billions of pounds. <laughs> so these two-line teachings are like, they, they weigh billions of pounds in terms of wisdom. And, and so even if you don't have time to, to learn a lot, this keeps your focus, this keeps the premises of life and, and the goodness of God very, very clear in your mind. And so on that thought, I'm going to wish you all a good week and only, only wonderful things. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.